Okay, so as I encourage you to look over your, your last bit of notes before jumping into the next bit of notes, I'm going to reread verses uh, 16 through 28 of chapter 9 to make sure we're in the flow of uh, chapter 10 here. So chapter 9, beginning in verse 16, uh, the author says, For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. So we're going from old covenant to new covenant, but you can't leave the old covenant unless the one who made the old covenant dies. Just like with uh, testaments, uh, the, when you make a last will and testament, that will and testament is not put into effect until the testator dies. Then it's put into effect. So uh, same with this. So Jesus, this is a great claim of Jesus being God. You know, God made this new covenant and Jesus has to die. So he's considered the testator and he dies. And now the New Testament can kick in. Uh, this is for a testament is enforced after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled the blood both sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, remission of sin. So with that being said, it says, therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. He just called all of their religious worship through the tabernacle a copy, not the reality. So the New Testament enters us into the reality and away from the copies. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have to, have to, he would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, and we talked about that last time, the end of the ages was when Christ came, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Imagine that. All these sacrificial systems for centuries and centuries, he's come to put an end to it by the sacrifice, not of an animal now, can be not even of another man, but of himself. And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. So there is where your judgment went. The point for us to die once and then the judgment. So Christ died once for all and took that judgment of ours upon himself. So the one judgment that we're, we have to have was taken by Jesus Christ. To those who eagerly wait for him, he'll appear a second time apart from sin, but not to atone for it, but he'll appear for salvation. And that doesn't mean to save people. It means to fulfill the salvation that he granted us through his death and resurrection, that all the promises of heaven would come true in our lives. Chapter 10, the theology of it all. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come. So the law is from the Old Testament, therefore it's just a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, 
can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. That's the goal. Perfection. So consider um, the fact that God has declared, be perfect as I am perfect. He says, be holy as I am holy. That's the standard for going to heaven. So if you looked at my day today, you would be able to point out my imperfection and my lack of holiness today. Never mind the 10,000 plus days I've already lived and the however many I've got left. They're all going to be marked by imperfection. Every day I fall short of the standard of heaven. So where's my hope? My hope is going to be in somebody who on my behalf can live that perfect life. From the moment he's born to the moment he dies, there's no imperfection in him at all. Jesus will say to his enemies, what sin do you accuse me of? And the only thing they could come up with is you say that you're God. That's obviously not a sin if you are God. That's simply a statement of fact. So uh, these offerings that were made year by year couldn't make us perfect. Verse 2 of chapter 10. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? So he asked this rhetorical question. If the Old Testament sacrificial system made the people perfect, then why do they have to offer it ever again? They would never have to re-sacrifice an animal if the sacrifice made them perfect. Because part of being perfect is not falling from that perfection. So the fact that they would be atoned for year after year means they're not achieving perfection. So therefore, the sacrifices have to be made over and over again. So we need a sacrifice that can perfect us. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. So every year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, they would be reminded that they're sinners. They would be reminded of that. Why? Because they would see the high priest sacrifice a lamb, and they would know that that lamb was innocent, and that that lamb didn't deserve death. But because they deserved death, that lamb had to have its neck split wide open, the blood gushed out, and the blood used to sprinkle, uh, to be sprinkled between the two cherubim on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant for the forgiveness of their sins. So that's constant reminder year after year that you're living a life worthy of death. Now, what is our reminder that we're living a life worthy of death? And the reason why it's important for you to know that you're living a life that's worthy of death right now is because what would Jesus Christ be in your life if you didn't realize that? He could be just a nice guy and a good teacher. But if you're living a life worthy of death and expect to live joyfully forever in heaven with him, then what's the justification for you living the life of somebody who lived perfectly and getting the reward of somebody who lived perfectly when you have it? How can we? How can God both be just and punish the sin that you commit and be the justifier saying, hey, it's okay that they're a sinner, they're still coming to heaven. The only way is if you can transfer your sin to a willing party, that Jesus has to be willing, and that willing party have the capacity to atone for the sins of the world. Obviously, I can't die for your sin. I have nothing to do with your sin. And your sins don't offend me. They're not against me. But our, all of our sins are against God. So he has the capacity to forgive them since they are against him. So. Now, the the author keeps saying this word shadow or copies. These are shadows of the realities. So I want you to think of 
how a boxer trains. A boxer will fight his own shadow, won't he? He'll shadow box. And he'll get ready for a fight by fighting the shadow. But it'd be silly for him to have somebody raise his hand up in the air and say, I just beat my shadow. I'm the winner over my shadow. Because it's not real. It's not a real fight. It's just a copy of a real fight meant to prepare him for a real fight. And that is exactly what the Old Testament law was. It was to prepare you for the real thing, but it's a copy and it's a shadow of the real thing. All right. Now, the standard is perfection. We're told, uh, like 1 Peter 1, uh, verses um, 13 through 16, it says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want you to think of the amount of money that goes into pills for anxiety. What I would want a pill is a pill that could remind me of this. To rest my hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Put your minds there, guys. You are a sinner living a life worthy of death. Jesus Christ's love overwhelms that condition and brings you to a place of grace. That at the revelation of Jesus Christ, you will you'll be found, you'll be rewarded as if you lived a perfect life on this earth, thanks to Jesus Christ. So um, it says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So, and that's from Leviticus 11. So we are called to be holy. Sin is the Greek word harmartia. Harmartia is an archery word for when you miss the mark, you miss the bullseye. You're aiming at something and you miss so sin means you're aiming at holiness, and sin means you miss. You fell short. So uh, we need somebody that hits that bullseye and then gives us the credit for hitting the bullseye. That's exactly what Jesus does. It's called justification. So now uh, verse 5. Therefore, when he, being Jesus, came into the world, he said, so now you're getting, this is from, um, this is from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, marvelous section of scripture. From Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8, we have the author of Hebrews giving us a commentary on it. And the commentary he's giving us is that Jesus is the one who's speaking in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. So it says, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. So you should have a capital Y with the word you because it's referring to God the Father. So Jesus is speaking to his Father, saying, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. So here's Jesus before he's ever born as a man on the earth, hearing from his Father that the sacrificial system just isn't cutting it for me. So I desire you to die. In, play, in, in the place of the sacrificial system. But a body you prepared for me in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book that is written of me to do your will, O God. There's a submission of the son 
to the Father in regards to realizing he will become the sacrifice for our sin. Now, I want to turn now to this fact right now. So as we talk about copies and realities, now we got to talk about outward realities and inward realities. Why is God upset with the sacrificial system? Well, I want to first bring you to the book of Amos, chapter 5. Amos, chapter 5. And starting in verse 18, we read this. So I want to show you Old Testament examples of God being fed up with the Old Testament system and why. Because it's not enough just to make the sacrifice. The question is, where's your heart in this sacrifice? So it's a couple of books after Daniel. You'll find the book of Amos. And in verse, chapter 5, verse 18, says, God says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. These are people saying, can't wait for the Lord to come. He says, well, woe to you. That's going to be a woe. That's going to be a curse upon you when I come. Why? He says, for what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is not is it not very dark with no brightness in it? Now you'd say, why? Who is he speaking to? Okay. Here it is. He says in verse 21, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried Sikah, your king, and Chion, your idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So what's happening there in Amos? He's saying, I am absolutely sick of the people who say great things with their lips but their hearts are far from me. They're saying, can't wait for the day of the Lord. Can't wait for Jesus to come back and all these things. But he's saying that's going to be a dark day for a certain group of people that want it to come. And who is it? The ones who take the feast days, the sacred assemblies, the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the peace offerings, and they use them as checklists. Look what I did. Look what I did. Look what I did. Look how holy I am. Look how religious I am. Look how spiritual I am. Their heart was not right. They were not broken over the fact that these things were required because they were sinners. So what God is looking for is not the outward movement of the sacrifices or the festivals or the feasts. He's looking for the inward condition of the heart that necessitated the sacrifice. He's looking for the broken and contrite heart that he can bless. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 11. So the very first chapter of this most awesome prophet's writing, he writes this. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, 
who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, these are God's, what they would say, we're God's children. We're the Israelites. And he's saying, I'm really tired of the outward displays of religiosity when I know the inward condition of your heart. I know when you want to look good to other people. I know when you want the applause of man instead of the approval of God. I know your hearts. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is also getting at. Um, Jesus will say this. Why do you call me Lord if you don't do what I say? So in other words, your lips are honoring me, but your heart is far from me. So it's the condition of the heart that God is looking at. Now, so what do we do about this condition of our heart? Well, the parable that speaks to me the most when I consider the condition of my heart is when Jesus talks about a Pharisee that walks into the temple and begins to pray next to a tax collector. And he starts saying, Lord, thank you that you did not make me like this man. And then he gives this laundry list of good things he does. I tithe a tenth of everything. Okay, um, I do all the religious works and services that you command. And thank me that you didn't make, make me like this guy that rips people off for a living. But the guy that rips people off for a living came to him broken and contrite, said he could not even lift his head up to heaven, couldn't even pick his head up, but was beating his chest and saying, have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. Jesus said that man walked away justified and not the other. Because it's not how you've lived your life. It's how your heart is before God. Because the idea of that tax collector is just like the idea of the woman cut adultery. That that brokenness and contriteness before the Lord is going to allow them to become a person that goes and sins no more. Not necessarily never again. Just simply won't be identified as a sinner. Be identified rather as somebody living for righteousness. So, 1 Samuel 15, 22, when Saul fell into a problem like this, he learned this, and this kind of sums it up in one line, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed is better than the fat of rams. So it's the condition of the heart that matters. All right. Now, 
verse 8, after we get this wonderful word from Christ before he's ever born, talking to his father that he's willing to be the sacrifice for, instead of the Old Testament system of sacrificing animals, he's willing to be the sacrifice. After that, we read this. Previously saying, this is verse 8, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, I want to read through verse 18. I want to read all the way through verse 18. And then I want to give you seven perfections that are accomplished in Christ's sacrifice. And I got these from John MacArthur, if you guys read John MacArthur. But um, let's pick it up now in verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So this man, capital M, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is a remission of these, there's no longer an offering for sins. Now, first of all. There are seven things that we just read that show what Christ's sacrifice accomplished with us. In verses 5 through 7, which is Christ's words to his father about him being the sacrifice because God's not pleased with the Old Testament sacrifices, we see that Jesus finishes by saying, I came to do your will, O God. So the new covenant in Christ fulfills the will of God. It's what he's always intended. That's why he gave us the shadows to prepare us for the reality. So verses 5 through 7 of chapter 10 shows it fulfilling God's will. In verses 8 and 9, where it said, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor have pleasure in them, which are according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. So, not only does it fulfill God's will, but the second thing it does is it initiates the new covenant. The sacrificial death of Jesus Christ fulfills the initiation of the new covenant. As Jesus said it was doing when he gave the Last Supper. As Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, that in one day a new covenant would be coming. Jesus at the Last Supper took the wine and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. He's initiating the new covenant through his blood. Um, so his sacrifice fulfills God's will, initiates a new covenant. Then in verse 10, it says, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So it sanctifies the believer. Uh, sanctification is one of the early procedures and what we call the ordo salutis. 
That's the Latin term for the order of salvation. So there's a certain things that happen in a certain order. You see it in Romans 8 of what happens when somebody comes to faith. And sanctification follows justification. You're justified. And I would say at the same exact moment, you begin a process of sanctification. So justification is a one, once and for all thing that happens to you. You're justified as a sinner going to heaven one day. But at the same moment of justification, sanctification happens. But sanctification keeps going throughout your entire lifetime. Sanctification means you're becoming more and more um, made in the image of Jesus Christ. You should look different year after year after year of being a Christian. You should look more like Jesus Christ every year. That's a, pro a process of sanctification. Um, it, it was uh, the guy from Key, Key Life Ministries on the radio. Uh, you're probably all coming up with his name right now when I cannot. Um, ah, can't think of it now. But anyways, um, he would always talk about sanctification this way. He would say, um, I'm not as bad as I used to be, but I'm not as good as I'm going to be. That's sanctification. Better than I was before I came to Christ, but I ain't as good as I'm going to be as I keep walking with Christ. Uh, the Holy Spirit does a work of sanctification in us. So this sanctifies us. And verses 11 and 12 talks about this. It says that every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. This man, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. So the fourth thing it does is it removes our sins forever. It removes our sins forever. Some other ways we hear about this wonderful news of having our sins removed forever is he removes them as far as the east is from the west. Now think about that. If you have an apple or an orange or a tennis ball or any kind of ball, um, if you put your hand at the north pole of that ball and start moving your finger towards the south pole of that ball, you're going south the entire time you're moving your finger. And then when you come to the south pole of that ball, the next movement you make is north. So in other words, north and south meet at the poles. Now let's take that same dynamic and move our finger from the middle of the ball and move it east. If you move it east, you'll always be moving it east. You'll never, ever, ever be going west as you travel east. Just think about if you travel in, in, in a ship or something and you start sailing east. As long as you can circumnavigate the globe, you'll always be going east and you'll never, ever, ever be going in a westward direction. Same if you travel west, you'll never end up going east. So if you go north and south, there's a point where north and south connect. North ends at the South Pole and south ends at the North Pole. But east goes forever east and west goes forever west. And that's why he says, I remove your sins as far as they are, as far as the east is from the west. That's eternally apart from you, as far gone as they can be. So God will say, I throw your sins into the sea of forgetfulness. Can you imagine that? And you say, God, how could you forgive me when I did this? He goes, not only have I forgiven you, I don't even remember. However, the divine mind can forget. He says, I throw your sins into the sea of forgetfulness. And what God agrees to forget, we should not hold on to in a negative, destructive way. And remember, it removes sins forever. The fifth thing it does, we see in verse 13, 
It says, from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. So it defeats his enemies, the death and resurrection of Christ, which looked, the death of Christ looked like the enemies won by all means. It looked like the enemies of Christ won Friday night as they take that body down and they pull the nails out of his body. You couldn't imagine what losing looks like more than Jesus did Friday night. But little did he know, did the people know, that death is the one that lost that night. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, starting in verse 21. He says, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And when is your death going to be destroyed? On the day you experience it. Because at that moment, you'll raise from the dead. You will rise from the dead. You will resurrect from the dead to enjoy the company of Christ forever and ever. Death will be defeated in your life. So as I, I don't know if I mentioned it in the Monday class or in this class, but when I do a memorial service, people talk about the person that passed away. I always point out to them that the Bible says they went on living. The only thing that passed away in Revelation, it says death passed away. Death and pain and suffering and crying passed away. The old order of things passed away. But your loved one continued on in Christ. That is every reason for the world to bow their knee to Jesus Christ. So it fulfills God's will, it initiates the new covenant, it sanctifies the believer, it removes sins forever, it defeats his enemies. Gotta wait till I can turn the page. Get number six. Verse 14 says this For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So you can guess what the sixth thing it accomplished. Our perfection. It accomplishes our perfection which is the standard for going to heaven, isn't it? Be perfect as I am perfect. The death and resurrection of Christ accomplishes your perfection. And then 15 through 18, we get our seventh thing that it does. It says, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for, for sins. So the new covenant that was promised is not just initiated, now it's actually fulfilled. So the death and resurrection of Christ both initiates a new covenant promised by Jeremiah, and then also fulfills the new covenant that was promised by Jeremiah. Verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest place by the blood of Jesus. Remember what a fearful thing it would have been to enter into the 
the Holy of Holies, you would die unless you're the high priest and you had blood with you and it was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. You violate any of those, you're dead back there. Now it says you have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. You're carrying that blood around with you and you're in you all the time. By a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So as I pointed out last week or the week before, the veil represents the flesh of Christ. What happened to that veil when his flesh was broken on the cross? It tore in two. And what did that, what purpose did that veil serve? Served the purpose of keeping us out of the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. But now that curtain's been torn. The cherubim that were sewed into that curtain are dismissed from duty. They're no longer guarding God's presence. And now we have the boldness to enter by the blood of Jesus. This is why Jesus is exclusive in that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father but through him. You can't have all this done on your behalf and then ask, is there some other way? Can you imagine the arrogance connected with that statement? To have historically the Son of God perform miracles to show that he's the Son of God and then willingly die very shameful and painful death for you, and then you ask, how else can I get to heaven? It's incredibly insensitive and arrogant. And in fact, we're going to see what the writer of Hebrews says about that in a moment. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, with a true heart. Remember what the problem with the old system was not that they were doing sacrifices. They were doing their sacrifices. But what was wrong? They weren't doing them with a true heart. So now it says now that you understand how much God loves you, draw near to him with a true heart, fully realizing your imperfections and your need for the sacrifice, that you are 100% dependent for your happiness and joy and life after death on this sacrifice, not 99% dependent. You're fully and completely helpless in this matter, and Jesus has done it all for you. So you can draw near having with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Remember the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do anything for your conscience, except remind you year after year that you're a sinner separated from God. That's all it could do for you. Now, your hearts are sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies are washed with pure water, the pure water of the word. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. There it is, folks. Hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering. Now, he's setting you up for those that waver. He's going to tell you about what the danger of wavering in your faith can do. So because all this has been done for you, do you see how important your knowledge of the Old Testament is? He's saying, if you know what went on in the Old Testament, you'll see exactly where Jesus's place is in the divine plan of redemption. If you don't know the Old Testament, then you're going to ask questions like this. Why couldn't he just forgive? Why, why has there got to be death and shedding of blood and all these things? That winks an eye at sin. It's saying, let's, let's not make sin so serious. Let's not make offending God and disobeying God so serious. Okay? So if your child openly defies you and says no to you, do you wink at that? It's the loving heart of a parent, just wink at that to say that's okay? Or do you discipline and correct as best you can, hoping 
can win their hearts back. So hold on to your confession without, of hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Your assurance lies on his faithfulness. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, this gives us three things that we should naturally do, not force. This should be the natural outflow of our hearts based on our knowledge of what he accomplished. So I gave you seven things that were accomplished through the death and resurrection of Christ. Knowing those seven things, here's three things that form a proper response to those seven things. The first thing we see is that we should draw near with a true heart. Knowing what Jesus Christ did should draw us near to him. We should walk in his direction. We should go where, where the people of God are. We should go where the word of God's being taught. We should surround ourselves fellowshipping with other Christians. We should purify our hearts. Have the prayers, have mercy on me, God, a sinner, and realize the great love that goes with forgiving sinners. So we should draw near with a true heart, as verse 22 tells us to do. The second thing is that um, we should have boldness in our faith, even in the midst of op opposition. Boldness in, in faith is not hard if you're not having your faith opposed. I tell my graduates as they go off to college, I hope you have teachers that call you stupid and dumb and a science hater and all the things that they're going to call you for being a Christian. Why? Because you need those moments of owning your faith. You don't own anything until it costs you something. What do you have in your possession that you own, that you could say above everybody else on the planet, that is my possession? It costs you something. Okay? So I want your Christianity to cost you something. I tell my graduates it should cost you a friend. Somebody that says, listen, I'm doing the parting. If you ain't coming, we can't hang out. Say, see you later. Let your Christianity cost you a friend. Let it cost you comfort. Let it cost you humiliation. Pay a price for being a Christian because then you're really going to own it. It's going to be yours in a very special and unique way. So have boldness in your faith, especially in the midst of op opposition and persecution. Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 said this, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Serious, serious business. Let your faith cost you something. The third thing we should do as a response to what Christ has done for us is be involved in Christian fellowship. We see in verses 24 and 25. Be involved in Christian fellowship. Why? It says because God uses us with each other to stir up love and good works. To stir up love and to stir up good works amongst ourselves. To support each other. To give to those in need. To show our love for one another. And by that, show our love for God. And it also says to exhort one another to exhort one another. So that means give the rah-rah speech for, for them. Uh, give them uh, corrective advice uh, when you see them not being faithful and obedient to the word of God. Uh, we need each, need each other for those things. 
And it says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Now, I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have heard this statement. I don't have to go to church. It's just the building. The church is the people. I can worship God from my own house. I want to tell you that directly spits in the face of these verses that the author of Hebrews is giving us. It's saying, don't do that. He's saying, don't forsake assembling yourselves together. Go to church. Be involved at church. Surround yourself with other believers. When you don't separate yourself from believers, then you're going to be under the influences of people who have the world as their standard. And that is the very thing you're not to conform to. This is why we're told to be, be in the world, but don't be of the world. So you've got to watch your conforming. You've got to be watch the drifting that happens because watch where our author's heart is as he encourages us to go to church and to be, to be with one another. Verse 26, he says, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why is it so fearful? Because of the very fact that he's living. The very fact that God exists and he lives makes it a fearful thing to oppose him, to rebel against him, and to deny him. This is one of the strongest words against apostasy. Apostasy is the sin being spoken of here. So let's talk about apostasy for a moment. Verse 26 gives you the definition of apostasy. What is it? It's sinning willfully after you receive the knowledge of the truth. When you sin willfully after receiving an awful knowledge of the truth, this doesn't mean that you went, you know the truth. I'm sure you're not here tonight not knowing the truth. You know the truth of the gospel if you're here with me tonight. So it doesn't mean because maybe you told a lie earlier today that you're an apostate. This is talking about denying the, the Lord that you know exists, and walking away from him. I hate to use names on this, but I'm going to. Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman uh, is a Moody Bible Institute graduate. He was a pastor's kid, grew up in the faith, um, studied theology, got his degree in theology, and then walked away from the faith. And now he writes books that deal with the fact that he thinks the Bible is not inerrant, not infallible, and all these things. And um, he wrote a book called Misquoting Truth. Um, no, I'm sorry. It's called Misquoting Jesus. And he's trying to say that people read the Bible wrong. There's tons of errors and contradictions in the Bible. But then there's a guy named Kaiser who wrote an answer to that book called Misquoting Truth, saying Bart Ehrman's misquoting the truth of these passages and so forth. And uh, uh, taught an apologetic class. I think it was the first one I ever taught. I don't know how many years ago now uh, at Calvary. 
and we use Bart Ehrman's book uh, to show the things that he spoke about against the Bible and then showed from Kaiser's book how Bart Ehrman was wrong. So I wouldn't read misquoting Jesus without reading misquoting truth right afterwards or at the same time. So you can see how Kaiser answers Ehrman there. But anyways, uh, apostasy is sinning willfully after knowing the truth. It doesn't mean telling a lie after you've been saved. This means being a habitual liar after knowing the truth, that you will lie and manipulate in order to make more money or in order to hide other sins, or um, you just make excuses for why it's appropriate for you to tell lies on a consistent basis. That's you sinning willfully after receiving a knowledge of the truth. We can't do that because it takes away the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit would not allow your conscience to stand being an habitual liar, okay? Or name the sin. The Holy Spirit is divine and lives within us and has a job to do. And that divine spirit's job is to sanctify you and to make you more like Jesus. So we cannot make excuses for sin in our life. We instead have to repent. We have to confess these sins to God and try to work, try to live uh, in the pursuit of this holiness that we're called to. And I promise you all that that's where your true joy will be found is in pursuing holiness rather than sin. So, so verse 26, we get the definition of apostasy. Verse 27 says, uh, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's the end of 26. Why would there no longer be a sacrifice for your sins if you're an apostate? Because you just rejected the only avenue of forgiveness for sins. The only avenue for you ever to be forgiven of your sins is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You reject him, you rejected that only avenue of forgiveness of sin. So you don't have a sacrifice anymore. The Old Testament system's over. Floods of bulls and goats are no longer acceptable. It's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ only. You reject him, you have no sacrifice for your sins. Therefore, you will have to pay for your sins. And the wages of your sins is death. Um, verse 28, uh, it says this, anyone who has rejected Moses's law, so he's talking about now before Christ, Old Testament, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So there's a historical example of apostasy. Okay. So an apostate in the Old Testament, if two or three people said, yes, he is indeed apostate, then he was given the death penalty for that. Now look at these next words of verse 29. How much worse punishment? How much worse? So the Bible, especially Jesus Christ himself, teaches very often in this how much more way. They'll say of the unrighteous judge who the woman has beaten down his door asking for justice, that he didn't want to grant it because he didn't fear God, he didn't fear man. But she kept knocking, she kept knocking, she kept knocking. He said, just to get rid of this woman, I'm going to grant her justice just to get rid of her. It's an unrighteous reason for doing a righteous thing. Jesus says, how much more, if that unrighteous judge granted justice to her, how much more will your perfectly righteous Heavenly Father grant you justice when you cry out to him day and night for justice? So how much more? Well, now in a negative sense, we get, if you got the death penalty for violating the law of Moses, how much worse will the punishment be, um, do you suppose, 
will he be thought worthy of who has trampled the son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified as a common thing. The blood of Jesus Christ spilt for you. You consider it common and not holy and precious and insulted the spirit of grace. Grace is you getting good things that you haven't earned or deserved. You're insulting that spirit of grace by not considering Christ and what he did for you as a holy and a reverent thing. Think about that when you take communion. Your heart should be bowed in reverence for a sacrifice that was done because you are so loved, because his attention is on you, that he wants you to participate in the spirit of grace. So we get a historical example there. And also for verse 29, I just wrote this in my Bible. There is more to apostasy than meets the eye. There is more to apostasy than meets the eye. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is when we people that walk away from Christ, I don't think they have any idea that they would be counted guilty of um, trampling the Son of God underfoot, counting the blood of the covenant uh, as a common thing, and insulting the Spirit of grace. I don't think anybody would say I did all those things. The Bible says if you know Jesus Christ and walk away, that's what you've done. There's more to apostasy than meets the eye. And then talking about how much worse punishment will an apostate get than those who walked away from God in the Old Testament. Luke 12, verses 47 and 48, Jesus talks about degrees of punishment in hell. So just like there's degrees of reward in heaven, there's also degrees of punishment in hell. We see it in Luke chapter 12 and starting in verse 47. There it says, And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. So it's saying, based on how much revelation you've been given about Jesus, will be the consequence of you walking away. So I would say if anybody born in the United States of America, of sound mind and will, born in this country, you are of the utmost revelation. Nobody in our country would say, Jesus who? I never heard of that guy. We all know the name Jesus Christ, and we all know the claim of his death and resurrection. And to we have been blessed with that knowledge that gives us the utmost opportunity to walk in the grace of God. But to walk away from it would be a very, very serious thing to do. Now, Second Corinthians 13.5, the Apostle Paul says, Test yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Now, how do you test yourself to see if you're in the faith? Well, that, that's what I think the spiritual disciplines are for. So we have spiritual disciplines of things like Bible reading, devotional time, worship time and i would say worship uh, more maybe just you and the lord than even corporate worship 
um, prayer, meditating on the word, fasting. These are spiritual disciplines that help keep us in the grace of God, help keep us close to God. Um, spiritual disciplines are very, very helpful for that purpose, to test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Um, okay. Verse 30. I'm sorry, verse 32. The author says, But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Now, these verses are preparing you for chapter 11. Chapter 11 that we'll go over next week is the great hall of faith. It's the hall of fame of the faithful of the Old Testament. Wonderful chapter. Absolutely motivational chapter. And he's starting to build you up for that chapter. And he says, um, when you're struggling in faith, when you find yourself maybe even moving towards apostasy, where you just are not caring about the things of God so much anymore, you're certainly not involved with the spiritual disciplines. You're making excuses for not going to church. You're not reading your Bible. When you hear the name of God, you're just kind of whatevering it over and over again. Um, he says, recall the former days. Think back on better Christian days for yourself. And that's a very helpful thing to do. Jesus Christ says that in Revelation chapter 2 to the church in Ephesus. To the church in Ephesus, he says some complimentary things to, for them. But then in verse 4, he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And that's him. That's Jesus Christ. You've left me. You've left your first love. But then he gives the remedy of how to recover from losing your first love. He says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. The first thing you do when you find yourself drifting from God Remember from that place where from which you have first fallen from. This is the tax collector in the temple saying, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. Okay, so remember from where you had first fallen is the first thing. Second thing, it says, repent. Repent. Lord, I remember now what you've done for me. I remember the holy blood that was spilt because my common blood you wanted to preserve. I remember the love of God in sending it to you to be my sacrifice. So remember, repent. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent of your sins and do the first works. In other words, what were you doing in the days when you were really close to God? How was your devotional life? Imitate that now. How was your church attendance? Imitate that now. How was your Bible reading? Imitate that now. How much worship music did you listen to? Imitate that now. Go back to the things you were doing when your love for God was real and hot. Do those things that you were doing at first. And that's what I think the writer of Hebrews is now saying as well. Recall the former days, verse 32. 
After you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. So remember when I said, let your Christianity cost you something? He says, remember the heart you had for me when you chose me over a friend, you chose me over a job, you chose me over a relationship, you chose me first. Remember those days. And surround yourself with companions of those who were so treated. There's the fellowship. There's exhorting one another to good works and love um, that he talked about earlier. And then this is a verse that people kind of think Paul might be the author because we hear this in his letters. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. And then I said this prepares you for chapter 11 because he says, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. It says that Abraham was able to leave his city not knowing where he was going. This is what we'll get next week in 11. Because he could leave the city of the earth behind because he was keeping in mind the city whose builder and maker is God. He knew where he was going to a heavenly city. So that when you know you're going to a heavenly city, it's very hard to not leave an earthly city when you're called to leave an earthly city. Then he says in verse 35, therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. So when you act out in faith, even when it looks like it's not the wise thing to do, but you say, I know the word of God calls me to act out in faith this way, that's not casting away your confidence. And it says that act has great reward. So just like there's increased punishment for the more revelation you have that you turn down and you walk away from, there's also more reward for you who your faith cost you something. Jesus will say, blessed are you when you're persecuted and called all manners of evil for my name's sake. He says, rejoice in that day and be exceedingly glad. Do you realize that that makes no human sense whatsoever? He just said, when you are persecuted for my name's sake and you endure all kinds of evil for my name's sake, the next word should not be rejoice. It makes no human sense. But God is not human. God is divine. And he says, you can rejoice in that day. For so they treated the prophets of old. And you will have a prophet's reward for enduring that. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. That's saying even if you're a little bit glad, you don't get it yet. If you get it, you'll be exceedingly glad. For you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. After you've done the will of God, you'll receive the promise. What's the promise? Verse 37. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. There's the ultimate call. Habakkuk chapter 2, Romans chapter 1, and now Hebrews chapter 10. The, the one who's justified, the righteous man shall live by faith. That means Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Now listen to how anti- human nature those verses are trust not in yourself that's human nature trust in the lord not 99 percent of the way with all your heart 
and lean not on your own understanding. This is your understanding. This is how you understand things apart from scripture. Don't lean on that. Okay? But in all your ways, acknowledge him. Okay? He will set your path straight. So the just will live by faith. Now, what is faith? Remember I said he's preparing you for chapter 11? What is this year to live by? Well, chapter 11, verse 1 defines faith perfectly. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith is substance. Remember, substance is real and tangible. So faith is substance of things hoped for. Now, don't confuse the word hope for an earthly hope. If you hope the Dolphins win 10 games this year, they might not. But when you hope for something in God, it's certain. If it's, you're hoping on God's promise, there's no chance of it not being fulfilled. So this is a hope of something certain. So what is faith? It's that substance of things hoped for, and it's evidence. That's why I love apologetics. They'll say, well, you just believe by faith. Everything's faith. Yes, based on evidence of things not seen. Now, my gosh, until the 20th century, that's things like atoms and molecules and things like that. Atoms and molecules and DNA tell us Creation has to be true. But we had evidence and things not seen. Now we have that evidence, and those things are seen now for us. Now, the just shall live by faith, and now back to the warning. But if anyone draws back, that's apostasy. My soul has no pleasure in him. Now the encouragement. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Now. Who's he talking about? Where does he get his confidence that he's not talking to apostates? Here's why. He just finished chapter 10 of a 13-chapter book. Now, to him, this is just one letter. He just sat down and jotted some thoughts down, and to us, it became 13 chapters. And this is 10 thirteenths of the way through it. He says, if you're still following me after this and after the strong warning I gave of apostasy that makes a lot of people leave, I promise you, I'm actually looking at the number of the people watching and see if it went down during those warnings. Because that's what happens. This stuff does not get preached in church all the time. Why? Because they're afraid people won't come back. And that is not a church for you to attend. You need to hear the truth, folks. You need every syllable of God's word. Okay? And not all of it is of its comfortable. And nobody's to apologize for that. Because God is the author. So, um, but why does he have confidence that we are not of those who draw back? Because you're hanging in there through 10 chapters. You're showing up on a Tuesday night online to listen to this. And when you ever allow people to mute you out, you're allowing Mike Snyder to mute you out. That shows a great submission that you can't even be heard from. That's unreal for human nature to tolerate. So. I believe in my heart, showing up for a Tuesday night class, you can receive that verse, that you're not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So I'm going to conclude it through a King James Version commentary on this section. It says this, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but it is a blessed thing when... It'll bring us to everlasting blessedness in the end. If when God speaketh unto us, we hearken. When he sitteth 
his word before us, we read it. When he stretcheth out his hand and calleth, it, and calleth, we answer, Here am I, here we are, to do thy will, O God. The Lord work a care and conscience in us to know him and serve him, that we may be acknowledged of him at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom with the Holy Ghost be all praise and thanksgiving. Amen. So when the Lord calls, we say, here am I. When he puts his word before us, we read it. And when he speaks to us, we obey. That's those who endure to the end. That's who receives the blessing of falling into the hands of the living God. Um, when David committed the sin of counting the army, and God was going to discipline him and gave him three choices of punishment. And they could be longer punishments that involve few people or shorter punishments that involve more people. He made his decision based on this. He said, let us fall into the hands of the living God. Let us make it where it's God doing the disciplining and not a nation that's coming in to do war on us or any man's um, hand in it. I want the punishment to be purely through God because he knew that God was going to be a priest who wanted to sympathize with his people's weaknesses. So that's what God depended upon. And God even relented of that punishment early, as David, I would say, predicted by saying, I choose to fall into the hands of the living God with this discipline. And he chose the discipline that was fully dependent upon God. So it's a fearful thing to fall into the living hands, into the hands of the living God if you're not walking in the love of the hands of the living God. But let us be that people. Amen. Okay, Mike. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Great teaching this evening. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. As you uh, get ready to sit down there, uh, I have been seeing a lot of questions coming in asking if you could clarify the seventh perfection of Christ. Uh, so you gave your list, and uh, we've got numerous questions around that. So if there's any elaboration or clarification that you could give us, on the seventh perfection of Christ, Bill, that would be a great start. Yeah, it says it fulfills the new covenant. Can you hear me right now? Yes. Yeah, you're good. Okay. All right, good. Uh, yeah, that it fulfills the new covenant. And I, I was going through uh, 15 through 18 from Hebrews 10. Let me go back to there in just a moment. Okay. Hebrews 10, 15 through 18. But the Holy Spirit also witnessed to us for after he had said before, this is a covenant I'll make with them after those days, says the Lord. And this is Jeremiah 31 that he's quoting, which is the Old Testament prophecy of a coming new covenant. So verse 14 says, by one offering, Jesus perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And then he's saying, this is in fulfillment of the new covenant promise of Jeremiah 31 that he will, um, verse 18, I'm sorry, verse 17, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. So the promise from the old covenant that a new covenant was coming, 
given through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. Part of that promise was that he'll remember our sins no more. The author of Hebrews is saying that happened when Jesus took your sins upon him, removed them from you so that your conscience no longer has to be seared by the guilt of your sin. Jesus took the sin upon him and will remember your sin no more. That fulfills the Jeremiah 31 covenant. So I said the seventh thing that the new covenant does is it fulfills the new covenant promise from Jeremiah. And I said earlier that it initiated that covenant. So it kicked off that new covenant and Jesus kicked it off at the last supper by demonstrating the bread is his body. The blood uh, the wine is his blood and there'll be the blood will be spilt and the body will be broken for them, for the believer. And, um, and then when that body's broken, that blood is spilt. That's when this new covenant in his blood was initiated and fulfilled uh, by God taking our sin and remembering it no more, as was prophesied through Jeremiah. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Uh, we've got a question here that is speaking of Peter the Apostle. Uh, was Peter born again when he denied that he knew Christ? Um, I would actually say no, and here's why. Not that he couldn't be, but I still think he wasn't, because I believe it's in John, uh, let's see, I want to say 18, I'm not sure, I have to look it up. But I believe, see, there's a time, obviously, when Peter denies Jesus Christ, and there's a time where Jesus breathes on the apostle, on the apostles, and says, receive the Holy Spirit, and that was their salvation, okay? That was when they were born again. So we just have to look and see which one of those came first. If the denial came first, and I'd say, no, he wasn't a born-again believer at the time. If the breathing upon him happened and then he denied him, I'd say, yeah, he did as a born-again believer. But I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that the denial came first. But I'm not positive of that. Um, actually, the breathing on him might have come first. I'm really not sure. Somebody wants to look it up while I'm answering other questions. That'd be great. But um, but we get three works of the Holy Spirit as far as salvation goes, and you see it clearly in the Greek. This is why translating to English doesn't work for us sometimes. But in the Greek, it talks about the Holy Spirit, para, p-a-r-a, with us. That's the walking alongside of us. That's the knocking on our hearts as a not before we're believers. He's knocking on our hearts to awaken us to the reality of God. Then what Jesus does to the apostles, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit, and it's the Greek word en, E-N, which translates to our English word in, I-N. That's the Holy Spirit coming in them, and that's the mark of salvation. That's when you become a born-again believer, and that's what happened when Jesus breathed on them. And it's interesting that it says that happened when he breathed on them, because in John 3, when he speaks to Nicodemus, he says, the wind blows where it wishes. Nobody knows where it comes from, where it's going. The same is true with the spirit. And the Greek word for wind and the Greek word for spirit is the same word, pneuma. So he's making a play on words, a play on the word pneuma, saying um, the pneuma blows where it wishes. The same is true with the pneuma. But we know he's talking about wind and spirit. And it's also the same word for breath. Wind, spirit, and breath are all the word pneuma. So when Jesus breathes on them, he's sending them the spirit. 
So, uh, and that's when they get saved. Now, the third work of the Spirit that we see in Scripture, we see in Acts 1 or 2, is when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. That's the word epi. Comes upon them in power. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So this is when uh, you're able to do more than you could do without the Holy Spirit because he's working power in you to accomplish God's will. So you, you, before you believed, the Holy Spirit was para alongside you. When you got saved, he became N in you. And then when you get baptized by the Holy Spirit, which Luke 11, 11 says, whenever you ask God to fill you with the Spirit, he will. Um, that becomes epi upon you. So um, I don't know if anybody did the research yet, but whichever comes first, the denial or Jesus breathing on them would answer the question if he was a born-again believer or not when he did that. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Here's uh, hopefully a, a quick, easy one for you. Are you currently teaching any apologetics classes or have anything coming up? No to the first part. I don't know yet to the second part. Um, I got an email today asking me if I would teach three to five classes around the end of June um, with one of the possibilities being apologetics. Uh, if I don't teach apologetics, it probably means somebody else like David Fine is teaching apologetics, but I believe apologetics will certainly be taught uh, end of June. I've seen the church talking more about apologetics teaching since the death of Ravi Zacharias, the apologetics giant of planet Earth over the last 40 years. Um, so I, I see the church wanted to make sure that apologetics carry on as best they can, at least on our campus campus says. So I'm sure something will be taught apologetically for three to five weeks and the summer. That's my first choice is apologetics, but um, I don't always get my first choice. So we'll see. Thank you, Pastor Bill. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this is from our friend Terrence. Terrence, you staying safe? Glad to hear you're doing well. Uh, he just made the comment, uh, Pastor Bill, that in John 20, 22, Jesus breathed on them after the resurrection, before the breakfast by the sea, uh, restoring Peter. So he was not a born-again believer when he denied the Lord. There you go. Thank you, Terrence. We appreciate the insight there. Um, so here's a question from George. He says, is an apostate church one that does not talk about repentance? Wow, that actually brings up something that was in my notes, and I went right past it, and I kept looking at it going, man, I wish I said that, but I had no way of knowing how to get back to it. So George, thank you. You walked me right back to it. And that's this. Um, I read of a, of a, a story of a chapel in England that above on the sign on the church, it said, we preach Christ crucified. and as they kind of started conforming to the world and the appetites of the world and not teaching the hard things like we just went over in Hebrews 10 and just doing the, the warm, fuzzy things that culturally are acceptable and bring in large crowds and all that, uh, ivy was growing on the church and ivy covered the word crucified and it just became we preach Christ. And that became true of them. They weren't preaching crucifixion. They were just pe preaching love and all that stuff. And as they kept 
conforming to the ways of the world, um, they wouldn't even mention Jesus. They would just talk topically. Here's how you have a great marriage. Here's how you do this. Here's how you do that. And the ivy grew over the word Christ. And now it just said, we preach. And it just had no direction to their preaching at all. That's an apostate church. Okay? They are very popular churches. Um, without getting too specific, I would say one of the most listened to voices in Christianity in the world today is an apostate. He's a false teacher. And his voice is heard more than almost anybody's voice uh, today. So you've got to be very, very careful. You've got to be very, very wise. Um, chances are, if you go to church 52 times a year, or hopefully you go 100 or more times a year, and you walk away feeling really good every time, you're probably not getting the whole truth, quite frankly. Okay? Um, we are sinners. We are helpless on our own. And we have to tell each other that. You can never call Christ Savior until you admit you're dead without him. What's he saving if you're not dead without him? So he's just a good teacher or a good wise man or whatever if we are not utterly helpless. But if we're utterly helpless, then we then Jesus Christ is Savior. Um, and that strikes against the entire self-help section of Barnes and Noble and places like that that tell you, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. I'm here to say, no, you can't. You can't do anything apart from Christ that has any internal weight whatsoever. And that's not a warm fuzzy or the feel good message of the, of the year. It's just simply the truth. And I don't think you can ever worship Jesus fully if you fully realize how needed he is in your life. And how much love went into saving you. Then you get a, a good and accurate look at Jesus Christ. That I think when you see Jesus Christ that way, it's the greatest cure for apostasy you could ever have. That's a Jesus you would never walk away from. I forgot the question. I hope I hope that had something to do with it. It, it was in reference to the apostate church uh, and in repentance. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I touched on that early, early in the answer. Yeah. Good job, Pastor Bill. Thank you very much. Uh, we've got another question here that is referencing Hebrews chapter ten, verses thirty-two through thirty-six. If you want to grab your Bible, there, Bill. So again, chapter two, verse thirty-two to thirty-six. Got it. And it's asking the question: the promise is the great reward to be received. Is the eternal presence and the glory of God? Oh, let's see here. Um, for you have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Is that is, are they asking what the promise is there? Yes. Uh, it, it's the promise is um, thirty-seven and thirty-eight. Um, he's coming, and he won't tarry. And in the meantime. Before he comes, you're to live by your faith. And I think it, it goes back towards that the righteous man will live that way by his faith. And then at the end of verse 35, it says there's great reward. So I think, I think the promise is that great reward of 35 
and the recipients of that great reward of 35 is those who endure through their faith throughout their lifetime. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Here's another question from Destiny. And she asked the question, how do you respond to people who state that prayer is an action or that in times of tragedy, when someone says we are praying for you, sometimes people respond and that action is needed and not prayer? Yeah, um, I hope that's no believer would ever say that. I understand the unbeliever saying that. I've heard many unbelievers saying that uh, through COVID and all that that we need action and not prayer. Um, but how would I respond to somebody that says that? I would say that um, you've just limited the entire response about whatever you're praying to, to the abilities of human beings. I don't want to limit it that way. I want to open it up to the possibilities of an eternally omnipotent God. So prayer and I think this is what that statement's misleading about. Prayer by no means hinders the work of man. If Christians had the stupidity to pray about something and then say, I prayed about it, I don't have to do anything now. That's just stupid. Nowhere in the Bible can you justify praying instead of acting. We're to pray and act. So I think the person that says, how would you respond to is anybody that would say, we don't need prayer, we need action, misunderstands the Christian's prayer. Christian's prayer is, help me to do more than I could possibly do without you, God. Bless me with the Holy Spirit, empower me through the Holy Spirit to, as I put my hands to the wheel to help in the COVID crisis or to help in whatever the situation may be. I want to be able to do more than my natural abilities. I want supernatural abilities. I want to do more than they ask or imagine is the promise of Ephesians, that he'll do more than we could ask or imagine. That's what I want. So whoever says we don't need prayer, we need action, you just limited the possibilities of greater outcomes than the doctors could do and the rescue workers could do. You've just limited it to a human response. And nobody in an emergency wants any help limited. But that's exactly what that does when somebody says we don't need prayer, we need action. And again, if they're speaking about a Christian who just prays and says, I did my part, I'll see you later, then yeah, that deserves criticism. Because we're never called to pray and sit on our hands. We're called to pray and then allow God to work through us in our prayers as we become doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. Thank you, Pastor Bill. We've got another question here that says, is the spirit of grace mentioned in Hebrews 10.29 the same as the Holy Spirit referenced in Hebrews 6.4? I think so, yeah. Um, so there's only one Holy Spirit, obviously. And I think uh, 6.4, uh, have like a big, big partakers of the Holy Spirit, yeah. And um, insulting the spirit of grace. Um, I believe the author capitalized, I think the translators capitalized spirit and spirit of grace, didn't they? So I look in Hebrews 10, salt of the spirit of grace. Um, yeah, they capitalized spirit. So the, the, the English translators, now this isn't the, we don't know if the author of Hebrews capitalized this or not, but certainly the English translators wanting their English readers 
to understand the passage, capitalize spirit and spirit of grace, which always indicates the Holy Spirit. Just like in 6.4, the Holy Spirit is capitalized. So I think certainly the biblical translators wanted you to understand them as the Holy Spirit and the spirit of grace. And that's certainly how I would understand it as well. Because otherwise it would just mean when God is gracious towards us, it's just the spirit he's in in the moment. But I don't think it means that at all. I think it means the personhood of the Holy Spirit as the distributor of God's grace to us. Excellent. Thank you, Pastor Bill. I'm not seeing any other questions. If anyone has anything else, feel free to send it our way. Um, What I will do is post your Facebook group and your YouTube channel, as well as the mobile app in the chat. So if people want to download this teaching, uh, you will see it. Uh, Oh, here comes a question from Stephanie, Pastor Bill. It says, how do you witness to an apostate, specifically someone who has been burned by the church and is threatened by conversations about scripture? Yeah. Uh, when I talk to somebody who's been burned by the church, the first thing I do is apologize on behalf of the church. And the second thing I do is to let them know that wasn't Jesus. That was just people of the church that failed you. Jesus Christ never for a moment has failed you. In fact, he has laid down his life for you. He has never offended you. Um, he will never do you wrong. So the ultimate act of throwing the baby out with the bathwater is to throw Jesus Christ out because of somebody in the church's offense towards you. Uh, I remember very early in my Christian walk, I had a friend named Chris who was just very recently married and his wife would not go to church with him. And her reason was that she was uh, sexually molested by a priest when she was younger. And therefore, she'll never step foot in church again. And he asked me to speak with her. And I, I said, um, you know, tell me about what happened. She said, this priest, you know, touched me where he shouldn't have touched me and so forth. And I said, um, and you're comfortable telling me that? She said, yeah. I said, why are you comfortably telling me that? And part of her answer was, because you're not the one that offended me. And I said, and neither is Jesus, but you're holding it against him. So I don't know why you would, if you don't hold it against me, because I didn't do it, why would you hold it against Jesus when he didn't do it to you? So um, that did open her eyes. I really don't know if she ever went to church again, but if it did open her eyes to she was holding against Jesus what a certain man did to her. And anybody that's offended by the church, um, I just let them know that that was a misrepresentation and you shouldn't base your decisions on misrepresentations. You should base your decisions on truthful representations of what you're going for. Just like when you judge a religion, you shouldn't judge Islam based on the radical nature of it. You should base it on your, on the 99% of it. And Christianity should be judged on the rightful followings of scripture, not the wrongful followings of scripture. So, um, that's the only way to be accurate about your assessments of these things. So um, you shouldn't judge God, for heaven's sake, uh, based on the actions of people. If they were disobedient to the word, then you should realize that the opposite of that person must be true. If they're obedient to the word, then you can judge them based on that. 
Thank you, Pastor Bill. We've got a couple comments here that mention, uh, are you aware of an apologetics class uh, kind of being run by Jim Kay, where you might be uh, doing some guest speaking in the month of June? Yes, Jim just asked me um, to uh, teach on an apologetics topic. I don't even know if he gave me dates yet or anything like that. But um, what I think I'm going to do for him, I think what I said to him was uh, I was going to take like five or six different areas like archaeology, science, uh, astronomy, um, morality, logic and reasoning. I think where the areas maybe philosophy and just give like one apologetic from each of those areas just to show how uh, if something's true, then it doesn't matter what angle you take of researching it. It should come out true by every angle. Uh, I don't care when you do two plus two is four. If you use apples or orange, whatever you use, two of them and two of them are going to be four of them. It'll be true any way you do it. So whatever worldview is true, it doesn't matter which angle you take. Um, it should come out true. So I thought what might be helpful if I'm only going to speak once at an apologetics uh, class, uh, I'm going to do like a sampler platter, just to give a taste of archaeology, taste of science, taste of astronomy, and just show an apologetic from six or seven different areas. And um, Christianity should be able to hold up to that type of scrutiny if it's true. So, um, yeah. So Jim sent me something, asked if I would do it. I said yes, and I really haven't got he said, what would you do? And I told him, and I just don't know when or where, for that matter. Um, so the answer is yes, and I don't know anything else about it. 